Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Technique, the podcast from createhub.com. My name is Richard Adams and uh, in this issue we will be discussing whether painting is dead. In 1839, the French painter Paul Delaroche first declared, on record at least, that painting is dead. Uh, And this was a direct response, really, to the advent of photography. And of course, he wasn't the first person to say that. In 1912, Duchamp talked many times about painting being washed up. In 1921, Rodchenko pronounced his monochromes the end of painting. Of course, it didn't really die. What actually happened was uh, it evolved, and it evolved spectacularly. In some ways, the advent of photography freed painting. But by the 20th century, the whole of modernism started to emerge, and as the 20th century went by, painting, in a way, retreated into intellectualism and the intellectualism that characterised much of modernism. As the age of mass media expanded and mechanical reproduction became ubiquitous, the role of painting reflected this and evolved into something that was inevitably much more intellectual, but also much more inward-looking. In many ways, painting became about painting, and as a result, more distant from wider audiences. In retrospect, I suppose, this was almost bound to happen, and it produced some utterly amazing art, but it was most definitely inward-looking. And of course, any culture that turns in on itself like this will eventually become inbred, irrelevant, and die. Mechanical reproduction of photography was simply technologies that aided people in image making. They still, of course, needed to be guided by artists and people. And as a result, they produced outputs that audiences on the whole loved. Many, many homes are now decorated with prints and photographies and reproductions rather than original art. I would argue, though, that of course they were merely tools that aided the manual creation of visual art. And the age we are now entering, the age of computation, holds out the very real possibility that the machine will be able to actually do the human thinking for you. And of course this is true in wider society. Most of our achievements recently have been with machines making us work better as humans, but the new computation age is largely being defined by machines that don't need us once they are working. So where does painting stand in the age of computation? When the first truly convincing computer painter appears, what effect on the role of painting will, will that have? In a way, this is the issue. I mean, the, the, the title of this podcast, you know, The Death of Painting, sort of reflects, my opinion, that painting will not die, but the nature of its role will change, and almost the nature of the painter will change. So the painter may well stop being a painter and become an artist. There's something about the notion that painting 
is separate from other art forms that is slightly weird and was a sort of function of modernism. The age of computational painting will take that away. So will the 20th century notion of painting as an intellectually purist activity die? And will painting be changed back into a craft? It is, of course, inevitable that paint on canvas will continue to sell, but will it carry on challenging itself as it did through the 20th century? Or will it become more akin to a craft, producing nice objects? Is becoming a painter about as relevant as becoming a basket weaver? The act of deliberately taking up a heritage pastime. With me on this issue of technique is an artist who works in Dallas, Alison Jardine, who is an interesting artist because she works across multidisciplinary media. She works in uh, paint, concrete, found media, but she's also one of the forefront of the iPad art movement. So I talked to Alison about whether she views the death of painting as being something that will happen. My name is Alison Jardine. I'm an artist um, originally from the UK and now living and working in Texas. You can find me on the web. Uh, my website is www.alisonjardine.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Alison Jardine. Talk to me, tell me a little bit about your work, because your work's quite interesting in the sense that you are currently, um, from what I've seen, producing things in what you might call traditional media and in real you know, physical media, but you're also heavily involved in, uh, in particular, a movement around iPad art. Uh, and I wonder if you could just talk to talk through a little bit of how you feel about the sort of tension between those two worlds. Yeah, um, that's right. I consider myself um, an interdisciplinary artist. Um, the choice of the media uh, through which I manifest an artwork is part of the creative process. I make paintings in oil paints, I guess that could be considered traditional. Um, I make paintings in cement and I also make um, digital um, three-dimensionally rendered um, installation art um, and as you say also iPad art which I'm currently um, writing a book about. Um, so they all explore the same things I'm interested in and they all offer me different ways to communicate my ideas and my feelings about that subject. So would you definitely not call yourself a painter? And the, and the reason I ask that, just <laughs> that, well, no, 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 it's interesting because inevitably when you discuss this stuff, um, there is a notion of purism and purity about painting. And often people will say I'm a painter, but why... I often wonder why, and, and there's a big debate about this, why should it ever be considered in isolation from other media? Yeah, I think, um, I think that I consider everything I do a painting, regardless of the materials I'm using, um, because my work draws on the language of painting um, and communicates in the way that painters have communicated um, throughout the centuries um, the advent of the current plethora and explosion in art, I think, will lead to a situation where the distinctions do become irrelevant. And I think we're really close to that. Installation art speaks all languages, all media, 
um, for example, the work of um, R.H. Quitman. Um, she is a painter, but she designs her paintings to be viewed peripherally as well as when you're walking by, and it may combine um, physical elements, sculptural elements such as a table, a painting, a print, a digital install installation. Um, and she describes herself as a painter. Um, and I don't think there's any need to, to reduce it to a single kind of media. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. I think, I think this, is, this is really fascinating because actually, obviously, the theme of this podcast is the death of painting. Uh, mm. And I would add brackets not to uh, <laughs> that. But, you know, in, in a very real sense, I, I wonder if you've said, you've said something there that's very interesting. You said you think of yourself talking in painting language, but you actually produce 3D installation, which I might counter you with and say, well, isn't that sculptural language? It is. It's all that's I think it's all kind of one um, extruding a painting into three dimensions is simply an extra dimension. It doesn't negate using painterly um, techniques and languages. Do you think that was one of the key failings effectively of modernism in that I think modernism had this thing? One of the things underlying modernism, as far as I understood it, well, certainly when I trained as an artist, was it had quite a dogmatic restriction of practice to one particular medium. And I, I wonder if that's where that's come out. And we are now fighting our way out of that because there's an element of the technology saying, actually, it's now easier than ever to make things physically. And, and that doesn't mean to say you're making anything worthwhile, but it is physically easy to make things now. And that modernism was a certain purist thing saying, well, you must think about only this. I think if anything is having an extremely long, drawn out and difficult death, it's modernism. Um, we have apparently transcended postmodernism um, and the beast is still kicking into ultramodern, the ultramodern, which is Nicholas Buriad's idea about what is going to follow postmodernism but they can't and drop it, the modern word can they they can't drop the <laughs> word and they're making mod they keep making mod modernism relevant um trying to make it relevant and i think it may be that that's dying rather than painting i think that um painting was freed by the advent of camera from having to be a workhorse that was essentially the propaganda for kings and princes and religions which is really what it served since its inception. Um, and it was freed from having to do a job. It could be a pleasurable thing. It could be about the personal experience of doing it. The artist became important. And I think new technology is accelerating that freeing up of the possibilities for painting. So do you think we're moving into, or we have moved into, and I, it's a leading question because actually I, I feel this myself actually, but we've moved into a post-medium condition and that the notion of practice as something that is continuous work on a particular subject matter using mm. particular formal media has completely lost its meaning. Um, I think it's not necessary anymore. I don't think, um, I think it's something, commercially speaking, it's something galleries still struggle with. 
um, it's much easier for for them to raise your profile and to make you a success in the art world if you produce a very similar thing over and over again. But then we look at someone like Gerhard Richter, who appears to be an effortless master of anything he chooses to do, and he changes from high realism to high abstraction to digital um, and whatever expression he chooses. And he seems to me to leave the critics rushing in his wake to make sense of it all. Um, and I think that's the model of the future, that um, it's about the personal curation of the artist in the artwork. It's becoming about that individual perspective that's fed by globalization and the internet. Could you say then, given that we've seen in the last 10 years a massive explosion of social media and sharing mm. in particular, mm. and we've heard and certainly, you know, I've, I've worked in and out of creative media industries. Um, there's, a, there's been a lot of talk about curation in that world. Mm. Are artists actually behind the curve in the sense that they're beginning to realise now that actually curation of a point of view is actually what matters, or curation of a message or, or something like that, rather than actually, you know, the art and craft? Yeah, um, I think that's an interesting question. I've wondered myself whether it, it, that idea doesn't arrive more out of the academic art than um, the um, commercial art world. And it's the, it's the undercurrent that's going on in the background. There's many different art worlds, many different levels, many different sort of ways to approach it, depending which one you inhabit. And I think that um, the current art is an academic art. I think that's the, I think I have a suspicion that is how it will be categorised in 50 years. You think it's the end result of the conceptual revolution of the 60s, effectively? Uh, no, I think, I think it is a little bit. It definitely, you know, that's when we got the idea that art could very overtly be about thinking and about concepts and thoughts. Well, let, let me just say that, that I, I think the reason I say that, and I think I said in one of the previous podcasts, you know, I was taught by some of the members of Art Language who pretty much define 1960s conceptual art. And, uh, you know, so my, my personal experience of it goes back effectively to the 60s. And I just wondered if we're seeing the death of that as well. I think that that whole genre was kind of difficult to ever flower because it became in subsumed and, and very difficult to communicate to people and to share the experience of it, to become comfortable with conceptual art is a step that requires quite a lot of exposure to the art world um, and quite a lot, I guess, of insider knowledge. My own epiphany actually came quite recently when I visited the Rachowski warehouse in Dallas and saw a work by um, Torres with the two clocks side by side. And they're just two clocks on the wall ticking at a slightly different speed. And I didn't, un I couldn't understand how this could be something precious because anyone could, you know, anyone can do that. And then I understood his story with his um, death from HIV and AIDS um, and the, the death of the love of his life. Um, and those two clocks, you know, represented them. And the fact he set them ticking and inevitably, you know, inexorably, one 
ticked faster than the other. They came out of step and then one stopped before the other. And the concept is that he gifted to us is so beautiful, it totally transcended the experience of those particular two clocks. To have that experience is a very um, difficult one for people to have. I'm a great believer that art belongs to everyone. I think it's one of the things that defines us as humans. And so when an art experience becomes so abstracted from everyday experience, when you can't put those in the, you know, the ordinary places of life so that people can have that, they can't share in it. And it becomes, I guess, elitist. Okay, um, so, so let's pick up on that elitist notion and go the opposite way to populist. Because obviously yeah. what we're seeing now with a lot of technology is people able for the first time to make pretty sophisticated images themselves, often on their phones. You know, we've seen the emergence at time of talking, of, of recording of this podcast, the emergence of apps like Prisma that can convert photographs into what look like paintings very well and can do it in a very mm -hmm. sophisticated way. Now, mm. if someone says, OK, I'm going to take my photos, I'm going to convert them like that, I'm going to print them out, I'm going to put them on the wall in my house, and that is art, do you disagree with that? Well, that's what Richard Prince does, in, in essence, yeah. printing off the Instagram. Well, I mean, he goes um, further, making a minor he, he prints off images that aren't even trying to be art, in the sense, you know, they're not, they're often <laughs> profiles, aren't they? Um, yeah. They, they are profiles. He'll make a comment on the profile and then he will print it, um, often with fantastic images on top that the unsuspecting person has created and put them up there. I think that people take great visual pleasure in things. And I think it's wonderful that people are looking at the, their new visual world, worlds of social media and screens with an artistic eye and taking pleasure out of transmuting something into something that's visually pleasing. I, I have no problem with that. And I actually just think it's um, an opportunity. Yeah, it's, a, it's almost an anti-elitism in a sense, isn't it? Because it's saying actually the, the elites over there don't actually count at all. And I, I almost feel like the, the gallery world, in a sense, has made itself largely irrelevant or the gallery scene, the dealer scene. Is, is, is useful because it, it gives artists certain exposure and it gives them income and this, that and the other, but actually it has less cultural import than it did in a wider sense. I mean, you may disagree um, with that. I don't, it's difficult, isn't it? There, there's no, there's nowhere for this I stuff think, that people are making to be shown yeah, and appreciated. I think over the years I've observed that what, in kind of in the same way, that things filter down in the fashion world where what is on the, it's speeded up now, but a few years ago, it would take a few years for some of the fashions on the catwalk to be in Target or other shops are available. Um, uh, I think that many of the concepts and the manifestations and the popular art objects in the art world eventually find their way into our everyday world. Um, a recent example, I noticed there was a fashion for um, everything related to deer heads um, and horn, horned creatures in the high art world. And about five years later, I saw a decorative gold deer head on the shelves of a supermarket for sale. Um, so it does. It, it filters out and changes our world. And it, it gives the everyday world its visual language that we're all going to be living with. 
So back back in in um, you know fifty years ago, the the, the notion of um, art in the age of mechanical reproduction was being studied quite intensively because you know and you had people like mm. Warhol using printing and and taking banal images often and making something else of them, and we've now got ordinary people taking banal images and making something of them. <laughs> well, we have, and and you know yeah. that's because you don't need a screen printing setup, you don't need an expensive camera. Um, you know, lithographic stones, plates, whatever, you know, um, you can just take a photo of something and make it into something nice. And I wonder if, um, <laughs> I wonder if, do you think we are in danger of becoming too mediated by the medium? And, and where do you think in the future, if you like, that the uniqueness will emerge? Because it, it it's you know a lot of when I'm talking about these people who are making art through media like photographs and apps, it's basically what the apps allowing them to do, rather than what they ought to be wanting to do. Do you think that's a problem? Yeah. Do you think that will resolve itself? For artists, yes. Um, uh, most of the digital artists I know who who see themselves as painters. Um, tend to find ways to put the hand of the artist back into it. They transcend mere programs by using them as either the inspirational underpinnings or by manifesting them and altering them again and again and again by feeding it back into the machine, printing it out, making hand gestures over it. Um, uh, I don't think artists ever are ever satisfied with playing by the rules i think that's one of the defining things of creativity is seeing of not seeing the edge of an app but seeing something that can inform your visual language um, or that can be a step in a process um it's it's easy to think that um because something's made on a computer um it can't be um, traditional art, but it is very traditional. If you look at digital painting, as you say, instead of breaking the confines and writing their own software or making the software the art, people use an app and they use it to make something that's aesthetically pleasing to them or displeasing. Um, and that's very traditional. I don't see that as avant-garde or new. Would you agree? Yeah, no, totally. And, and I, 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 you know, I, I mean, I, mess about a lot with apps and photographs myself and frankly I don't think of them as art at all um, because I don't think they're exploring the language in any way I don't think they're, um, mm. they're they're pushing things forwards in any way they are simply outputs of a machine sure the likes of myself and yourself would not be satisfied with just sticking something through Prisma you know you might put it through several different things you might do things and you might actually shoot a good photograph in the first place um, yeah <laughs> You know, which helps. Uh, I still get asked if I've got a good camera. Um, you know, <laughs> but it's this sort of the triumph of the banal for me. I mean, I just find it very interesting that the triumph of banal, and in a way, and also a lot of my other friends that I talked to in London, there seems to be a resurgence of painting. Um, and just, you know, yeah. Richter-style abstract gestural paint on canvas and paint on stone and at the same time and it's, it's a very it's strange what, process it's almost a rejection of the digital yeah yeah i think that's i think that is definitely a theme um 
people are printing digitally first on things like vinyl and then they're putting paint over the top um, and they're making it about how the paint looks like as if it were digital. There's, there's, certainly at the moment, there is a, a fashion for making art that looks digital that isn't. So people will approach it and go, is that a print? You'll say, no, it's entirely made by hand. Um, people like Bernard Fries, um, who makes multicolored um, brush strokes that look as if they're produced by one of these machines, like, like a Photoshop brush. Um, there definitely seems to be a push towards the handmade in the face of kind of the an anonymity of digital art. Um, this feeling that something you can sign and you can mark and you can leave a thumbprint on is um, placed in time. Whereas a digital painting could have been made at any time since that technology was invented and doesn't appear to be threaded into time in quite the same way. And time's really important to the art world. Categorization of art takes place on a linear time scale. And of course, right now, we can access pretty much the whole of art history at the touch of a button. So we can reference the whole of time, uh, you know, that, that's recorded on the internet, you know, the, the, the history of art. At the same time, we can have six windows up on our computer everything from prehistory to now. And I think that's influencing the way paintings, um, the visual language of paintings, but much more subtly than I think anyone expected. We're all waiting for that great moment where art leaps onto the digital and makes, some, makes the next great thing like a wall that, that is broken. But I don't think that will happen. I think it comes, comes on as slowly. Um, it's assimilated and it's kind of... Um, holistic and subtle. It's the artists who get affected by, by new tech. It's not the technology or the artwork. And from the artists come, comes the push to do everything. I think that's what's sometimes missing in discussions about the art world is the how it feels to be an artist and make art, that drive to keep pushing into these strange and unsettling places, these, these explorations you want to make. And that will never change, whether it's VR, painting, cave painting. It's that sense of wonder and fear that the artist lives with at the same time that makes the art. So do you think that the 21st century will be or could be in, in Western art specifically could be characterized mm. more by a return to arts and crafts approaches to things and understanding of things in that many more people are making things, doing things, selling things. There's a whole economy growing up around 3d printed jewelry, um, you know, and, and paintings and these photographs we've talked about and the, the sort of conceptual art has run out of steam to a large extent. The conceptual painters I meet now are just throwing paint onto canvas and really enjoying it, you know, <laughs> making paintings again. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think that's part of a general trend away from the high conceptual nature of largely what the 20th century was, back to the act of making? No, um, because the, the the key to term there for me is back. It's always gone on. It's never changed. The joy of painting, as you well know yourself, 
is an irresistible pull once you felt it. The joy of smearing paint. It's never gone away. No, People no, no, are now I'm just sorry, surprised I mean anyone... I mean, going back in terms of... We had a... Um, a craft economy in Victorian era where lots of, and you know, there's a lot of people, uh, a pre-industrial revolution, in, in fact, where people made things because they had to. That's all I mean in terms of practice. I see. Yeah. So I think, I think um, what springs to mind when you, a couple of things spring to mind. One is we definitely have a very exciting maker culture. Um, the return to the idea of um, technology has become so different. You can't, barely work on your own car anymore because it's so complex and that seems to be changing and we're able to build our own world through component parts that we put together um and i'm very excited by maker culture and um another thing that springs to mind is that many jobs and tasks involve the creative process and our creative acts but those people aren't necessarily artists and what they produce is an art I don't think there's any escape from the old aphorism. And I think this is Oscar Wilde who said, all art is useless. And the more I look at the world, the more I think that art must be useless in order to truly be art. And I think that distinction stands. So, again, I'd like you to put your, your brain thinking ahead in, in terms of this. And I know you have involvement in a university and you teach sort of generations coming through and you're, you know, exploring yourself and moving ahead. But, you, you know, we've got, as I said earlier, I think we've got this maker culture, we've got the crafts movement coming back, we've got, you know, we've even got digital bloody weaving coming in now and things like this. Uh, but we've also got these artists who I said who I meet, you know, who are throwing paint at canvases. Do you think, you know, to me there's a joy in doing that, but do you think that's also slightly a, a cynical dealer market-led thing yeah it's a good question um walter robinson the art critic certainly did um he came up with the term zombie formalism um in 2014 um in which he meant to describe painting that's been reduced to rote formalism for purposes of flipping like flipping a house they're things that tick all the boxes and they're what all the people who have condos in New York and their friends have, and they're easy recognizable as smart art. Um, and he was contending that this kind of painting is dominating the market because it's been, in a sense, um, uh, responding only to the market. Dealers will pick up artists who are making it, so artists will make that. Um, so I'm not sure that for everyone, the return to pouring paint on is anything other than perhaps a revival of um, this sort of abstract expressionism, Clement Greenberg view of art. Well, it's just opportunism. Yeah, um, you know, like that. It, it is. So, OK, so one last question, Alison. Um, yeah. Projecting further ahead. Yeah. What do you think the skills will be? in 20 years' time, that someone calling themselves a painter will need? Fundamentally, they will need to be able to have control of their own creative act. That's all you'll need. It's. I think that education will lead to a place where we are aware of what it means to harness our creative impulse and the ideas we have, regardless of genre. Um, 
And I think that that will be an aspect that survives longest um, in the assimilation by sort of computers of our everyday tasks. Because um, as I believe currently, we cannot program true randomness on a computer because the scale is too big. We can't program no, creativity. You'd need a computer um, that can process an infinite set of numbers, which is logically impossible. Yes, exactly. It's a conundrum that no doubt the, the answer will come from a sideline we didn't anticipate. But um, currently... five years ago, seed random was the bane of my life. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You cannot produce randomness. But then is randomness then something you shouldn't be using? Well, I don't think we are random, actually, um, in, in the sense that creativity doesn't create something out of nothing. Because um, nothing can do that, right? Mm. <laughs> Apart from the universe. We create out of what is around us, whether we know it or not. All our lives, everything we touch, see, smell, experience, feel is still in our bodies. Um, and I say bodies advisedly because I no longer think that the seat of consciousness is necessarily in the brain. Um, certainly as an artist working gesturally, it feels to me as if my intelligence is right down to my fingertips. Um, and so this kind of creativity is um, inherent in us as a species, and it takes what's around us and reformulates it, makes new connections, and which in turn creates new, new materials and new pathways. But it certainly isn't originality. The one thing art is not is original. So, the death of painting has been greatly exaggerated. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please go to createhub.com, that's create-hub.com, to find more articles and more podcasts and the link to this. Uh, enjoy! Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.